All right, well, good morning. Uh, <laughs> that was a great response. Um, usually when I'm speaking to students, it's in the evening, towards the end of the week. Everyone's kind of dead and <laughs> tired, uh, especially worse as the semester goes on. So that was a pleasant, pleasant response. Um, it's a joy to be here with you this morning, uh, like it's been stated a few times, and some of you already know because I've, I've been here before. Uh, I'm the campus minister for Reformed University Fellowship at Kennesaw State University, uh, one of your missionaries. It's, it's one of the ministries of this presbytery. Um, I've been sent to that campus to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve Christ and his church. Um, and so it's, it's a privilege to get to share the word with you this morning. Um, and especially to come, I get to preach at a lot of our churches and our presbytery and, and, and around the area, uh, but especially two weeks in a row, a little mini-series, if you will. Uh, we're going to spend both weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, I would very much encourage you to follow along. I want you to be confident that I'm not just making this up. Um, and I just, I just want you to know that uh, I am praying for you, and I know that, that going through a transition uh, can be a very hard thing, and oftentimes, uh, no matter how well those things end, um, it can just bring up a lot of hard things. And so, uh, I'm praying for you, and I'm especially excited to get to share God's Word with you this morning. So, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to read God's Word for us first, so at the bare minimum, you'll get to hear Him before I, I muck it up, but uh, I would encourage you to join me in prayer, um, that we would go to the Lord and ask Him to be active in our time together, that we would practice the belief that without the movement of God's Spirit, it's all for naught. Uh, we need Him to establish the work of our hands in, in all of life, but especially in the preaching of His Word. And so let me read this for us, and then we'll go to the Lord together in prayer. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come to you this morning and we, we acknowledge that we are not worthy of your grace and mercy. And yet we come to a passage in your word to us which speaks of worthiness. And so this morning, as, as we seek to submit to your word and, and even worship you through the sitting under the reading and preaching of your word, um, Father, would you guard our hearts against misinterpreting that word, of slipping into any sort of false belief of being able to earn your love and your mercy? Father, would you make this a profitable time together in your word? Would you, great Father, send your spirit to take up your sword and pierce our hearts, divide down to the very core of who we are, and shape your church 
into the image of Jesus so that we might glorify you, not just in this time together of worship, but in this community um, and in, in the surrounding area that you would make this church a beacon of hope, a beacon of the gospel, and a picture of the sort of change that only you, Father, can bring into sinners' lives, the sort of change that reflects the way you treat us in Christ. We, we lift these things up in his name. Amen. Well, given the, the occurrence of the word worthiness, this concept of worthiness in our passage, I'd, I'd like to begin by asking this question, and you don't have to, to answer out loud, although I'm, I'm about to do that. Uh, have you ever struggled with the question of worthiness? Have you ever wrestled with that feeling? Perhaps you uh, got a job and uh, you immediately thought, I don't know if I, I really was, was cut out for this or deserved this. Um, perhaps you've received a gift before and, and, and wrestled with that question of worthiness. Uh, it's something that I often wrestle with, and it's, it's often an ugly battle in my own heart. Uh, part of the privilege of serving RUF at Kennesaw State, and, and I'm careful to use that word privilege, is to share a vision for what God is doing on that campus and to invite others to partner in that financially. And I can assure you that uh, support raising certainly brings up ugly questions of worthiness. Have I, have I earned uh, and, and respected and honored uh, the, the, the giving of these people? And it, it's healthy for me to want to honor what God's people have given to that ministry, but it's dangerous for me to believe that I deserve it or can, can earn that uh, favor that I've been shown uh, through God's people. And so I, I want to open by reminding us that as we deal with a word that I think can be a difficult word, a challenging word, we're jumping into Ephesians chapter 4. We're jumping into to a letter in which Paul has very carefully laid out the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, he has, in so many different ways already in this letter, laid out the good news of salvation through faith alone. Right? Many of us are familiar with that, that famous verse, one of the best verses we could go to in all of the Bible to, to clearly and succinctly state salvation by grace alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At this point in Paul's letter, he begins to really unpack that the last part of that phrase, this idea that if we've truly been saved by grace, if we have entered God's kingdom through no uh, work of our own, no deserving on our part, but simply through the, the work and the merit of Christ on our behalf, what does that workmanship look like? as we begin to respond to God's grace and mercy in our lives? What does it look like to walk in good works? Notice he uses that same phrase here in chapter 4 uh, to, to carry along that point. And, and I think the thing we want to see this morning is that grace was always meant to produce work, but not work that earns God's love, but instead that reflects and honors that love. That, that testifies to the world that we have already been loved in Christ in a way that we don't deserve, 
I could never have deserved. And so I have a few more questions for us as we begin our time together in this passage this morning. Um, and, and I'd like you to, to, to try, once again, rhetorically, don't, don't, don't shout them out at me. It could get awkward. Uh, how you might answer these questions. If you're a note taker, feel free to, to write down some of your responses. But if I were to ask the question, what would a visitor or outsider to this church say is valued in this church? How would you respond to that question? What would someone say is valued at Grace Covenant just in visiting a worship service and coming to a fellowship meal or an event at this church? I think that's a really important question for us to ask um, because it'll speak to what we're trying to honor, what we're trying to serve. If you're here this morning as a visitor, I'd just like to uh, uh, articulate again, as has already been said this morning, we're, we're so glad to have you. Welcome. Uh, you could approach this question a little bit differently and just think, what, what is my impression thus far? Or perhaps what would I, I like to see valued? The second question that I want to follow up with, though, is what have you perhaps longed deeply to see be true of this church, especially recently? If you could fix something, how might this church look different? The first question, I think, gets at how we are living worthy and, and what we're really honoring, right? The way we live often speaks to what we really value. If we're blind to the first question, it will be very hard for us as God's people to repent and change and grow in the gospel. But that second question is often very revealing, isn't it? Because if we're not careful, the second question might lead us to seek change that's not truly biblical or at least places the emphasis where Jesus does not. Right? Because I think one of the things Paul wants us to see this morning in this passage is what matters to the heart of Jesus as we begin to wrestle with that question, what does it look like for us to honor the grace and mercy of Jesus in our lives? Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to go to this passage, all, going back all the way to when, when I first was invited to come speak, knowing that this transition was occurring, is I don't think there's many passages better for us to go to in God's word, especially in a time of transition in a church. Um, because we're going to see next week that, that, that Paul is going to address things like church office and, and some of the nuts and bolts of what it looks like for us as God's people to work together in community. But before he gets to church offices and leadership, this is the passage that he lays before us. This is the call that he lays before us. And, and I hope we'll see this morning that we're to honor Jesus in our pursuit of each other. And that the way that we pursue each other was always meant to point to the way we've already been pursued in Christ. So I, I hope that's exactly what we'll see. I'd encourage you to look with me at verses 1 through 3 and first address this question. What does it really mean to live worthy of the gospel? Once again, uh, if we're honest with how we might expect this answer, that this question to be answered... Uh, we might be a little bit surprised with the way that Paul goes about answering it. I think for many of us, we might expect that, that uh, question to be answered with uh, personal holiness, maybe avoiding drunkenness, avoiding sexual immorality. Those are some of the things that we, we might have anticipated. I think if I went to the college campus and just stopped uh, students cold and asked them, regardless of their affiliation with the church, what do you think it might mean to live worthy of the gospel? They would probably... <laughs> give answers along those lines and say, and read my Bible, you know. 
Um, and those aren't bad answers. Those aren't things that Jesus doesn't care about. But it's interesting because both here in this passage and a passage very similar to it in Philippians, both cases where Paul uses this phrase, walk worthy of the gospel, he very much in both cases goes to the same answer. And that answer is very relational. It's very relational. The character qualities, the virtues that Paul lays before us this morning are virtues that ultimately deal with our relationships with other people around us. He lays out four things. I would argue that the that the final one, it, because especially the way it occurs um, in, in the passage, uh, is really kind of a summary, summary of the, the previous three. But he lays out humility, gentleness, patience, and finally this action of, of bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I think that is the first three character traits in action. Um, and, and I think it, we would do well to consider what exactly Paul is calling us to. The first one, humility, I think is, is one of the easiest to misunderstand. Because oftentimes in the world, we can think of humility simply as self-deprecation. Uh, not, not, not being too proud, and there, there's some truth to that. And yet it's very easy, isn't it, for us in, in self-contempt, self-deprecation, to practice a sort of false humility and a sort of humility that really just focuses on ourselves, where we either have to just kind of lie to ourselves about how we actually are, or we have to, to just force ourselves down into the muck and, and, and beat ourselves down in a way that doesn't give God much room to speak. I think if we read carefully the way the Bible talks about humility, we'll see that so much more of it has to do with how we think of others before ourselves. In the, a very similar passage, passage, like I've already referenced in Philippians, starting in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul uses that same phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life walk worthy of the gospel. Very similar ideas. In both of those passages, he talks about how we live in community with each other. In Philippians, he talks about fighting together for the gospel. But eventually, he gets down to this idea of encouraging one another in the, in the participation of the Spirit, in the comfort that we have in Christ. And in verse 3 of chapter 2, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, the gospel gives us a different way forward to humility where, yes, uh, we see ourselves as we really are. And, and the power and, and grace of Jesus should lead us to repentance. And yet so much of the gospel drives us then to serve others as Jesus serves us. And to think of others before ourselves and to think of the sacrifice Jesus has made, not just for my life, but for the lives of those around me. You see how this humility is different from any sort of self-manufactured humility uh, because it, it drives us to serve others. And, and we don't have to be uh, false in, in that humility because our ultimate standard isn't other people around us, it's God. We don't, we don't have to lie about ourselves uh, to still find ourselves lacking in much. And yet as we repent, we don't turn back to ourselves, instead we turn to others. What would it look like for humility to be practiced in this church? What would it look like for us in our relationships to think of others first, to, to maybe even seek to pray for someone with whom you're currently having a disagreement? To think of 
the sacrifice Jesus made, not just for your own soul, but for the souls of those sitting around you even right now. That's a different sort of humility than I think anything else can offer us. But that humility must be coupled with gentleness, a, a kindness and meekness towards others. Uh, we have no greater example of this than Jesus himself, who was a, a meek Savior. And, and so often we can confuse that word with weakness. And yet so often the greatest forms of meekness are when we have the strength and power to fight for ourselves and fight for our own self-preservation and yet willingly choose to lay down that power to serve others. That's the real meekness of our Savior. Yes, it's amazing that he cleared out the temple. Many have rightly observed for one man to clear out the temple with a homemade bullwhip is in many ways a miracle of strength. And yet the greater strength is displayed in the garden, isn't it? When he prays, not my will be done, but yours. And he goes and he receives blow after blow as he lays down his life. No one takes it from him, but in great strength and meekness sacrifices himself for us. And so a spirit of humility and gentleness means that we must be seeking in the strength that Jesus gives us to serve others and to communicate with each other in such a way that it communicates a tenderness towards the struggles in our lives. And I think, I think this is a particularly difficult area for us in, in today's day and age, partly because of the many ways that we can now communicate with each other. I can now send a, a quick text message to anyone that oftentimes may not convey very much of my heart. It's a frequent problem I encounter with students uh, who oftentimes will talk to me about how they've, they've talked to and spoken to so-and-so. And one of the things I learned early on on the college campus was I couldn't assume when I heard the phrase, I was talking to so-and-so, that they actually were talking to someone. Oftentimes, they'll use that phrase, and what they really mean is we've had a long text message conversation. And, and there'll be this conflict that's playing out, and uh, things are getting more and more sideways as people hear through the grapevine other things. And it, oftentimes, the, the, the path forward begins with, well, I think you need to sit down face-to-face. You need to be able to see the, the pain in the other person's eyes that you're, you're talking about. They need to be able to see you try and articulate some sort of compassion for them in a way that, that your, your text or your email just never will be able to do. And so sometimes it's, it's just as simple as the way in which we try and talk to each other, the method with which we communicate. But we as Jesus' people who've been shown tender mercy and gentleness from our Savior are called to, to practice that with each other. We who are served by a Savior who doesn't break a bruised reed or put out the smoldering flax, the suffering servant who deals tenderly with us calls us to deal tenderly with each other. Finally, I think the final the character or virtue you put here is patience, long-suffering. be another way of translating that word. right? It speaks to the reality, the expectation that we're a community of messy people trying to serve each other. That I need to not just have an expectation of failure and the need for repentance in my own life, but patience implies I have to be expecting it from others and that I'm here for the long haul. That it's not a sprint, but a marathon of walking side by side alongside of each other in the community of Christ. Um, and I, I think this one is, is particularly convicting because... Oftentimes when we think about the gospel, we think about God's mercy towards us and how 
He is so patient towards us. And ultimately, I think we are called to a sort of patience in, in our efforts to grow in Christ. Uh, an understanding that, that in Christ, nothing, including our own sin, can separate us from the love of God. And so God graciously, patiently keeps pursuing us. And yet how easy is it in our conflicts with others on the horizontal realm to to so easily and quickly forget that same patience? To say, well, I tried, I said what I should have said, I I tried to be the better person. And usually, right, it doesn't take more than a couple efforts for us to say, you know what, I've, I've done what I should have done. I've said what I should have said. Forget that seven times 77 forgiveness thing. I've offered forgiveness three times, and that's a biblical number too, right? Just like the disciples. Maybe three plus three plus one, seven. Seven's biblical. That'll be good. We're called to a patience. The final thing that we're called to, I think, in a lot of ways, is all of these things in action. I hope you'll see this, because I think this is so often true in the gospel. We could go flip back over to Philippians chapter 1 and see the same thing happening. So many of the things we're called to in Christ are just impossible for you and I to practice and grow in without getting our hands dirty and being in one another's lives. If, If gospel humility is thinking of others first, if gentleness can only be displayed as we have other people to be gentle to, as we can only display patience as we have people that wrong us, and give us calls for being patient. All of these things, they're only possible in practicing community. And I think that's why Paul then, after listing these virtues, kind of sums it together as bearing with one another in love, working, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Right? What does it look like for the community of Jesus to try and walk worthy of the gospel? We might be tempted to say, well, having really good theology. Listen, I, I work for an organization that is named Reformed University Fellowship. I love Reformed theology. <laughs> like it's, it's part of my name on campus. It's one of our distinctives as a ministry. It's not the flag we're supposed to wave, though. I think Reformed theology should help me wave the flag of Jesus Christ. But that's the flag I'm really called to wave. There's so many things that we might look at our church and say, this is what we have to have in order to be worthy of Jesus. And yet here, Paul lays out a simple call to reflect the gospel in our relationships. How few churches (laughs) would want to have the slogan, our church, a church bearing with one another (laughs) in love, right? We put up with each other in love. That, that doesn't sound exciting. I think I'm going to go to the church down the road that has a much more beautiful and exciting and pleasantly vague theological vision. <laughs> uh, most Christmases, uh, if, if you give any gifts to your children, you probably experience that one gift stands out above the rest. And if you're like us, it's often not the gift you maybe anticipate. It might be the cheapest toy bought from Target or Goodwill. Uh, wherever you go to get those toys that they just latch onto. But this year might have been our, our best one yet as a family. We got some hand-me-down Nerf guns from it. <laughs> yeah. I just love that they're, they're still at the age to not like be like, this looks used. Um, we got some hand-me-down Nerf guns and uh, some extra Nerf bullets off Amazon. And it's been wonderful because the whole family gets into it. Uh, we've got three boys and a little girl 
the, the oldest, six and four and a half, uh, they can at least cock their own weapons and sometimes shoot in the right direction. Uh, I'm still able to intimidate them, though. Daddy usually wins. Uh, our, our, t- our toddler, um, who's not quite two, just kind of walks around saying, cock it, cock it, because he can't, he can't cock his own weapon. And then even if it is cocked, you better watch out. It doesn't matter if he's on your team. There's no telling where that bullet's going to go. And then our four-month-old, Anne McLean, is a perfect human shield. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we don't, we, we don't draw, drag her into it yet, uh, but mom does get into it. It's a family thing. We'll make sure Anne McLean is safely in another room, and then we'll have a family battle. It's been fun. My parents even visited recently, and my dad got in on the action, and at one point we realized the boys had stopped playing, and it was just the three adults, myself, my wife, and my dad who were playing. So we really love it. Uh, it's been so sweet to have something as a family we enjoy doing together. Um, and not that this hasn't been tried a few times, right? But it would kind of defeat the purpose of Nerf guns in general, but also the intention of their grac- parents trying to be gracious to them if one of the kids were to hoard the weapons um, in their room. Not that they would ever try and do that, <laughs> right? To take them and, and, and say, no, these are mine. Uh, y'all can't play with these. I'm building an armory to myself. Um, all of a sudden, those Nerf guns would be useless, right? Jesus gives us so many gifts in Christ. And almost all, if not all of those gifts, are intended to be used in God's family. There is no hoarding. And and, and to hoard them would just be to make them useless. There's no hoarding of humility or gentleness or patience. It has to be brought forth among us. And there's nowhere where we can better give glory to God's graciousness to us in pursuit of us than as we seek to pursue other sinners. And as the the very moment in which we might be discouraged in this might begin to think, but you don't know how hard it has been. You don't know the conflicts I've been through, the things that have been said. Paul reminds us, doesn't he, that our ultimate hope for success in this is not simply in our efforts, but he says it's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Right? That just as we don't come to God's word thinking that anything uh, truly powerful could happen without the work of his spirit in our hearts, the same is true of our community. That we would not make any real effort towards unity without believing that unless Jesus is at work through the power of his Holy Spirit, the great comforter to bring unity, it's, it's all for naught. Right? That we are called to grow in holiness and to strive towards these things knowing that Jesus cares about them deeply, that his spirit is at work. That is the source of our real hope. But the second question I want us to to, to look at is why is our effort toward unity so important? And we've certainly alluded to it, and so we don't don't have to spend as much time, but it's it's where Paul wants us to land in this section of his passage. If you look at verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out a very famous statement uh, because of the many ways in which we can apply it to, to different things we could talk about in the church. Of all of these ones, there's ones everywhere, right? There's one body, there's one spirit, there's this one hope that they have, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. You see, Paul says it matters that God's people seek unity with each other and pursue each other because there's only one option, there's only one salvation. If you, if you go to the New Testament and you see over and over again that these phrases, 
one another, that so much of the exhortations and imperatives, the commands that we receive in the grace of Christ involve how we treat each other, it really starts to connect together and make sense when we realize that division in many ways is a particular sin that speaks against the hope of the gospel, doesn't it? That for someone to enter into our community and to see us divided and unable to reconcile, they might rightly begin to ask, wait a second, isn't your hope about reconciliation? If we're going to look at the world and say that Jesus has freed us from our slavery to sin, and He now, to our delight, is our Lord and Savior, our King who rules our hearts. Are we going to, in division, in strife, serve other masters? Are we going to die to ourselves in our efforts to love one another? When we, when we see how division and conflict so easily pushes back against the heart of the gospel, then it just it makes so much sense that over and over again, Jesus is saying, the world will know your mind not by your theological correctness, not by your incredible worship team, uh, not by your beautiful building, but by your love for one another. Your love for one another. That our unity would be a reflection of a unity that could only occur because of our one hope because of our one faith. Some of you might think, but <laughs> there's baptism in there. That, that often defies God's people. And, and here I don't think he's, he's encouraging us to, to debate sprinkling or pouring or dunking or however you want to get wet. Uh, he's pointing to the, the, the real significance of baptism, isn't he? It's right there alongside of one Lord, one faith, right, that baptism points to that one salvation. There was only one death and resurrection into which we are united in Christ how could we, uh, in our refusal to pursue each other and care for each other, suggest to the world that there was any other way? And so uh, I, my, my hope and prayer for us as God's people is that when we find ourselves failing to pursue unity, arguing with each other, we would have that surreal moment that I think we often have as parents. Uh, if you've ever been in that moment where you found yourself so frustrated with your kids and, and you're yelling at them, <laughs> screaming perhaps, just stop screaming. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I have three boys um, and a little girl now, and Kelly and I both oftentimes find ourselves in that just sad irony of <laughs> losing it and saying, stop it, and realizing, wait a second, I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> I, I can understand how you're getting a mixed message right now, but I do need you to stop, and there will be discipline. <laughs> right? When we begin to fight with each other, we need to see the sad irony of it. We need to not lose sight of our one Lord. And that's exactly what Satan would love for us to do, to begin to return to that yoke of slavery and self-preservation, that desire to protect our name and our comfort. Uh, just actually with no plan at all for this this morning, just for my devotional reading, I was reading uh, 
John Calvin's little book, a little, <laughs> I'm not insulting it by calling it a little book. The title now is A Little Book on the Christian Life. Um, so it's an excellent little read if you would like something devotional to look at. Uh, but in speaking about our, our efforts to grow in holiness in Jesus, he expounds on a point that I think Paul is making here, where ultimately in mentioning all of these ones, our one Lord, our one Savior, and our Father who is all, in all, through all, above all, he's pointing to whose we are. He's pointing to a life that is no longer ours, that we have laid down in Christ, because we know that none of us can save our lives of our own strength by seeking to protect our lives, but instead as we lay it down, we find true life. And this is what Calvin says, if we are not our own but the Lord's, it is clear what errors we must flee and what we must direct our whole lives toward. We are not our own, therefore neither our reason nor our will should dominate our plans and actions. We are not our own, therefore let us not make the gratification of our flesh our end. We are not our own, therefore as much as possible let us forget ourselves and our own interests. Paul is not just arbitrarily grabbing some theology in verses 4 to 6. Well, I just gave them some exhortations. I need to go back to some theological stuff because that's what we do in the church. He understands that in reminding us whose we are in Christ, he's pointing us to the real foundation of unity. And so this morning, as we, we conclude our time together in this passage, I hope that, that all of us, as we're going to look at Jesus and say, I'm done, I've arrived, don't need any more grace, have some conviction that the Holy Spirit would bring us the clarity to see the, the areas in which we need to change, even now in our lives. But as you feel that conviction that I hope you feel, and as the Lord brings it into my life as well, don't miss that the way in which Paul has constructed this passage leads us back to God's grace, doesn't it? Right? He could have flipped the order around very easily and said, you have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Therefore, be unified, be gentle, be kind. Um, but he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't do it that way, does he? After laying out God's gracious mercy to us early in his letter, he leads into this idea of walking worthy through our pursuit of unity, and then he returns back to whose we are. He returns back to God's grace. And so if there is any conviction at all in the Spirit, run back to Jesus. Don't seek to change or do this of your own strength. It won't last. You'll get nowhere. Run back to your one Lord, your one faith. Run back to the grace that your baptism points to. And find mercy and hope and love. Imagine how we might give our children a living picture of the gospel if we were to just start pursuing reconciliation in Jesus. Imagine what sort of gift this church could offer to the search committee, to the future pastor, if there was a, a, a genuine, in the power and grace of Jesus, pursuit of unity. What a beautiful gift that would be. And what a significant thing it is that Paul addresses this before he talks anything about apostles or evangelists or pastors, as he's about to speak of next week. And who knows, maybe because we serve the one Lord and Father and ruler of all, 
we might actually begin to notice his work in our lives. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, once again, we thank you for the gift of your word. And even as you seek to bring real conviction into our lives and you seek to change us, often drawing us into suffering, often drawing us into other people's lives, often drawing us into the sacred ground of sin and shame, conflict. Father, would you remind us of who and whose we are? Our new identity in union with Christ, our one Lord, who forgives us in each moment of failure, who forgives us in our disunity and yet beckons us to follow him in the path of humility and gentleness and patience that we might love each other and bear with one another in a way that points to your faithful, patient pursuit of us. Thank you, King Jesus, for bringing us here this morning. We ask these things in his name. Amen.